The big question is, how does someone with MS actually improve their mobility, strength, energy, independence, the list goes on. My name is Dr. Gretchen Hawley, physical therapist and multiple sclerosis specialist. Welcome to the Missing Link podcast. Tune in as I share the top strategies and exercises to help you gain control over your life with MS using research-driven insights and advice from top industry experts. Whether you're newly diagnosed or have had MS for over 30 years, whether you have relapsing MS or progressive MS, this podcast is for you. You're sure to feel empowered and inspired after each episode. Ready? Let's dive in. Hello, everyone. I am tuning in from Orlando, Florida today. I have been away at the annual MS conference hosted by the CMSC. That stands for the Consortium of Multiple Sclerosis Centers. They have a meeting every year, except last year, of course, because of the pandemic, where people come and share research. And I love coming. I totally nerd out over everything that is mentioned at these conferences. It's truly the brightest minds in the MS world, researchers, clinicians, just sharing the research they've done and the advancements in multiple sclerosis over such a broad range of treatments, you know, everything from medication to exercise, new things that are in clinical trials. Um, so today, I'm going to be sharing with you some of my biggest takeaways. And it's funny because this is the fourth conference that I've been to. And when I came here on the very first day, I started reminiscing about the past conferences that I've come to. And I always get so excited. And I remember during one of my first conferences, I was sent a brochure before on what all the different lectures are going to be. And let me tell you first, there's, I didn't actually count the number, but there's probably honestly, maybe 20 or more lectures each day. And it's a four day event. So it is a lot of lectures, lots of learning. And unfortunately you do have to pick and choose the ones that you want to go to because a lot of them are at the same time as others. So anyways, I got this brochure and I was picking the lectures that I wanted to learn about. And I remember telling my patients like, guys, I'm going to come back with all the answers. Like just wait in five days, I'm going to be back with you. And I'm going to completely change the way I treat and everything is going to be different. Cause I'm learning what's new. And I realized as soon as I got to the conference that sometimes you don't actually get answers. Sometimes research doesn't give you definitive answers and solutions, but rather the outcome is we need more research on this topic. And unfortunately that happens all the time, which makes sense. We are never done with research. We always want to figure out what's next and how can we improve this even more? And so I ended up going back to the clinic and I did have answers and some results for my clients, but I also had to share with them, you know, there is research, but we still don't know the answer. So 
it was a little eye-opening. So now I know to expect that, but this time around, I felt like I actually did get a lot of clarity on some of the topics that are super important to the way that I work with my clients with MS. So that is what I'm going to share with you today. And just please keep in mind that what I share in this episode are my interpretations of the research that was presented here at this conference. And I am not suggesting or recommending any specific drug or treatment for any one person with MS. I'm just sharing with you what research is saying. And I think it would be the best if you use the information you learn this episode as awareness of what is being studied and I would urge you to try to take notes during this episode and write some things down so that either you can do your own research or you are aware so that when you hear your neurologist or your other doctors talking about some of these words, it won't be the first time you hear them. It will at least be the second time. So use the information as awareness, bring up these topics, these medications, these treatments with your neurologist to see what they think. And for any of the ones that are available right now, if they think it would be a good fit for you and your multiple sclerosis, I think it's important to mention as well that most of the drugs that I'm going to mention today are not yet available. They are still in clinical trials, but it's really, really exciting research. I want to share them with you anyways. Before we get into all of this nitty gritty detail and a lot of note taking, I just wanted to share something fun with you that I'm actually not sure if you know about me or not. I will sometimes share this on social media, but it became very fitting while I was here. But one thing that you might may or may not know is how much I love ice cream. I don't know why. I don't know when this started. I do know that my dad loves ice cream and there's pictures of us from me at a very, very young age eating ice cream with him. And so I've loved it for a very long time. And I love finding new ice cream places to go to whenever I travel and ideally local ice cream places that make their own ice cream. Now here at this conference, we are at a resort And so there actually is a creamery, which made me so excited. It was not local ice cream, unfortunately, but it was, I think it was Hershey's ice cream. So my ice cream of the weekend or week rather was Moose Tracks. And I love that. So just something fun to know about me. All right, now let's get into it. We are going to start with talking about one of the biggest topics, remyelination. So I'm going to do my best to stay away from any fancy medical terminology because it can get really confusing. And again, these are just my biggest takeaways. I am going to be sharing all of the nitty gritty details for all of the topics here that I mentioned on this episode fully in my online MS wellness program, The Missing Link. So if you're looking for a full recap, not just takeaways, then definitely consider looking into the missing link online wellness program. I'll have a link in the show notes for you guys to watch a behind the scenes video to see if it'd be a good fit for you. Okay. So diving in remyelination, just so you guys know, let's start off with very basic information. What would remyelinating mean? So remyelinating means that we would be able to restore our neural pathways. So basically the pathways leading from our brain all the way down to our muscles, 
so we can restore the conduction of those pathways. It would also mean protecting those pathways from damage and recovery of function. So this is huge. I know some people out there are saying that remyelination medications would technically cure MS. Now, I don't, I don't fully know about that, but it certainly sounds like it could do something massive. So improving the neural conduction from our brain to our muscles, protecting those pathways as well, and recovery of function. So basically, we'd be able to restore function that has been lost. And they actually have done studies in mice and in cats. And at this conference, they were reporting on some of those specifically that they were able to re-myelinate using medications and that the myelin is thinner than normal myelin, but it's still functional. And so specifically, there was a study with cats who had demyelinated optic nerve. So that basically means these cats had MS and the optic nerve was demyelinated. So therefore they lost vision and they were given this drug and they had recovered vision with remyelination. So that is huge and very promising. And I want to, before I get into the specific um, medications that were mentioned, I just want to share with you that many things challenge remyelination in our brains and spinal cord and lesions, but there are some things that we actually can have an impact on. So the two main things, and again, there are others, but the two main things that impact remyelination, number one, insufficient number of cells that create myelin. So we would need more cells to create myelin. And then number two is an inhibitory microenvironment. So what I mean by that is, of course, we need to have cells that create myelin, but we also need to have an environment that supports remyelination. Otherwise, it's kind of like let's think see think of an example here. It's kind of like you're sending in teams of people to rebuild a rundown or deserted community. But many times a day, a tornado comes through and ruins everything that was built. Or another example might be like trying to plant a tree or any type of plant in the desert. You bring the soil, you bring the seeds, you bring water, you plant it, but the environment in a desert just will not support a plant or a tree to grow unless it's a cactus and it won't grow or it'll die. And so we need to have the tools to rebuild myelin, but we also need to have an environment that supports it. And that's what research is looking at right now, which medications can not only repair myelin, but also support the environment that we need. So there's a few things. Number one, we need an increased number of cells that produce myelin. And there's two ways that we can do this. One is through drugs, which is what they're researching. And another actually is through exercise. So exercise actually increases the number of cells that produce myelin, even after demyelination has occurred. So that is very promising. Number two, we need to stimulate these cells that produce myelin. So not only do we need to increase the number of cells that create myelin, but we need to stimulate them. We need to make sure that they actually activate and 
um, recreate and keep moving forward. And so there's a few drugs that have been found to do this in mice. A few examples are benzerapine, clemestine, clobetasol, and metformin. There are others, but those are just a few of the ones that have been found to actually stimulate these cells that produce myelin. Number three, so for improving the microenvironment to make sure it can support the new cells and reduce inflammation, there are two medications that have been shown to be effective. One is fluoros, let me pronounce this right, fluorosamine. And then the other one is difluorosamine. And this, the latter, difluorosamine, has been shown to be slightly more effective and increase the number of cells to create myelin by a little bit more than the first one. So uh, that's definitely one to have your eye out for is difluorosamine. And then the second part of creating a healthy microenvironment is modulating and moderating inflammation. And so I'll get into that in a second, but one of the medications they think may help with that is niacin. But before I get into that, I just wanted to update you guys on some studies for drugs that you may have heard of, because these have been researched for the last few years. So we have some, some answers and these, some of these studies are still going on now. So again, this is one of those areas where we need to just stay, uh, stay in it to win it and wait for more research to come out. But the first one is opacinumab. This is one that is part of the anti-lingo study. And this one has had benefits in patients 40 years of age or older. However, some studies showed that it did not show improvement in disability compared to a placebo. So that's where that one is at, opacinumab. The next is vexerotine. And this one showed that it is more effective in patients 42 years of age or younger so kind of different from opacinumab, that one is more for the older population, whereas vexerotine is for a younger population for remyelination. And then you heard me mention niacin just a little bit ago. Niacin has been shown to be the most promising repurposed medications for progressive MS because it can actually promote the number of cells producing myelin, and therefore it promotes remyelination and neuroprotection. Another medication I want to touch on here, but keep in mind, it is not for remyelination, but it's another one that I'm sure you've heard of because there were a lot of tests happening with this, let's see, maybe up to five years ago or longer. And this buzzword is high dose biotin. I'm sure you may have heard that there were studies on that and it was thought that it could be beneficial for people with MS. So for high dose biotin, there was a there were two studies. The first phase three trial showed a 12% improvement in people with MS, which is huge. 12% is a big number to improve by. So that trial showed such promising results that they did a second trial. So the second trial for high dose biotin was a longer study. And so this one was actually 20 months long. And this trial surprisingly showed no benefit for high dose biotin. And that second study also concluded that the first trial had safety problems and misinterpretation of results. So people are no longer suggesting biotin as 
a significant way to improve any type of MS symptom. All right, so that wraps up our remyelination and our slight tidbit there on biotin. So I'm going to move on to nutrition. Walls versus swank diets. This is a big conversation happening right now in the MS world. And I'm just going to give you the outcome from the study. So both groups, the walls protocol, as well as the swank diet. And if you haven't heard of those, they are very common diets in the MS world proven to help improve your symptoms. And so this study looked at the differences between them. I think the main goal is to see if one was better than the other. So both groups, walls and swank showed improvement in fatigue, improvement in motor function, and improvement in cognitive function. So they both showed improvements in all of those areas, and there was no significant difference between the groups. They also didn't use a control group. It was just simply comparing walls versus swank. So half the people did walls protocol, half the people did swank, both groups improved, and there was no difference between the groups. So this led the researchers to think, well, okay, they both did great. What is one common denominator? Because there are some similarities, but there's also differences in those diets. And the main common denominator that they found was that both of those diets have low salt. And so their recommendation for now is just continue to have a low salt diet. They did let us know that there's going to be a trial coming up very soon uh, with a control group. So that will be great. We can compare it to people who are not following either of those diets. And this new trial is also hopefully going to have MRIs to see if we can understand any potential differences in the brain when we're following a specific meal plan. So that's going to be really exciting. I'm not sure when that's coming out, but hopefully they'll get that study started soon. Our next topic is spasticity. 80% of people with multiple sclerosis have spasticity and spasticity often leads to lack of self-confidence, frustration, decline in self-image, isolation. These are things that researchers have proven in their studies. And so spasticity is a big symptom that we need to be focusing on because it can have a huge negative effect for people with MS mentally as well as physically. So spasticity can be primary or secondary. And what I mean by this is that primary spasticity is spasticity caused from the disease process itself of multiple sclerosis. Secondary spasticity is caused from other symptoms. So, um, you know, as an example, having a full bladder can sometimes cause spasticity or cold intolerance or heat intolerance can sometimes cause spasticity. So newest research is showing that in the best way to treat spasticity is actually in a multifaceted way. Currently, spasticity is mostly treated with medications, and that might be something like baclofen, which can cause weakness and or seizures. Tizanidine is another common one, and this one actually has been found to cause less weakness than baclofen, but more fatigue. And benzodiazepine is 
uh, group of medications that can be best for nocturnal spasms. So if you have spasticity or spasms at nighttime, that is one of the recommendations that they are suggesting. However, if those medications don't work, there are other options such as Botox, which is considered a more local treatment. You can get botulinum toxin injected into the specific muscle that you're having spasticity in. If that is not enough, they do have other options. They have the intrathecal baclofen pump. They have rhizotomy, which is a surgical treatment. So that's typically how spasticity has been treated. And sometimes it does include rehab, which of course I am an advocate for. And that might be things like stretching certain muscles, strengthening other muscles, but some new research that is coming out is on cannabis. And I do first want to say that cannabis, it's still being researched. And since it's not legal in many states, accurate assessment and effectiveness of cannabis is still really challenging. So keep an eye out for the next many years to see what, what is done in research. But what we do know so far about cannabis, specifically for spasticity, is that inhaled cannabis has a negative effect on cognition when comparing people with MS who inhaled versus people with MS who did not inhale, and they used a different method. Components of cannabis are THC and CBD. And THC is the psychoactive component. This actually can help with nausea and vomiting. So if that's something that you struggle with, that's something that can potentially um, benefit from cannabis. And the CBD portion is the part that can help with neuropathic pain. There is a medication that, I, I don't even know if I should call it a medication, but there is a, a cannabis product, that's what we'll say, called Sativex. It's THC and CBD. And this has been approved in Canada and Europe for MS symptoms, including spasticity and pain. And then another one that is being used for acute and chronic pain, as well as mood disorders, is ketamine. So those are some names that you can keep in the back of your mind. And I just wanted to share with you as well that there are other investigations going on uh, with other drugs. So some things that researchers are looking into to see if it can impact spasticity are things like transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is abbreviated as TMS, direct current stimulation, TENS, transcutaneous electrical stimulation, FES, so functional electrical stimulation, vibration therapy, cryotherapy, as well as thermotherapy, neurobotics, and then also nabiximols, dronabinol, and VSN16R. So those are some medications that they're looking into. So spasticity, we know it is a big, common, important symptom to look into treatment. And so I just wanted to share those with you. So you know that there's lots of research being done. So hopefully we'll have some more answers in the near future. And I just want to end this spasticity update on really focusing on how important it is to work with a group of people, work with your neurologist, your physical therapist, your occupational therapist, 
to help determine the cause of spasticity or what triggers your spasticity. Because as I mentioned, it can be primary, meaning from the disease process of MS, in which case medications might be important, but it can also be triggered or caused by bladder or bowel issues, poor sleep, weakness, temperature changes, psychosocial components. These are all things that were proven in research that can affect spasticity. And all those things that I just mentioned are things that physical therapy and occupational therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy can help with without medication. And so it's really important that you have this discussion with your neurologist, not just of, Hey, I have spasticity. What medication can I have? But also, Hey, I have spasticity and there are things that trigger it. Who can help me with this? Next is fatigue. So fatigue, again, super common in multiple sclerosis and similar to spasticity, there are two different causes, primary and secondary fatigue. So these are ones we've known about for a while. Primary fatigue is caused by inflammation from multiple sclerosis itself. And secondary fatigue is caused by symptoms. And this could be sleep, spasticity, heat intolerance, weakness, anything that causes your fatigue to increase that is not related to the actual demyelination. Um, so the third thing that is coming out in research that is really, really exciting in terms of causes and management of fatigue is psychosocial. So psychosocial causes of fatigue are things like mood disorders, lifestyle factors, and maladaptive behaviors similar to spasticity treatment should be multifaceted because we know that fatigue can be caused from demyelination and therefore the inflammation in multiple sclerosis, as well as other symptoms, as well as psychosocial factors. There's many ways that we should be treating it based on what's causing it. So treatment should be a combination of physical, such as exercise, medical, such as medications and behavioral. So, and honestly, I think this may have been one, one of my favorite lectures to sit in on. So psychological approaches can help fatigue considering psychological issues can actually be a cause of fatigue. And the researcher who is telling us about this gave us a really great example of how one of the clients she was working with in the study was able to vacuum but she fatigued so quickly and she kept complaining about how she can barely vacuum. This really bothers her, but she can take a pottery class standing for an hour and she didn't get fatigued. And so the researcher was saying, you know, well, why would this happen? Why can someone fatigue so quickly when vacuuming and she can't even vacuum for five minutes, but when she's taking a pottery class, she can stand for an hour and her fatigue doesn't kick in at all. And one of her conclusions, uh, which is why she did this study, was that if she mentally enjoyed what she was doing and was in a more positive state, her body could withstand more and actually avoided fatigue in this case. So that led her to this study. And her outcome was that 
treatment for fatigue should be multifaceted. So one component to treat fatigue is exercise. There is a high level of evidence for exercise in reducing fatigue and multiple sclerosis. And your exercise can include aerobic exercise, resistance exercise, a combination of aerobic and resistance, as well as aquatic physical therapy. So all of those have been shown to help reduce fatigue. Now, touching on the psychosocial, I'll get to the medications in a second, but the psychosocial component of treating fatigue can include things like cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is nicknamed ACT, and then mindfulness-based stress reduction. And that's abbreviated to MBSR. So these three, cognitive behavioral physical, sorry, cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, and mindfulness-based stress reduction have all proven to be effective ways to manage your fatigue. And you can do a combination. It can be CBT and ACT or CBT and MBSR, but whether it's on its own or in combination, these are treatments with zero side effects, zero negative side effects. So there's good evidence for effectiveness in these techniques for fatigue and multiple sclerosis. However, they did note that the effects wear off over time meaning it's something that you need to keep up with. And so what the discussion became here in the lecture was, is cognitive behavioral therapy something that maybe we should be giving a session to learn it and to really master it? And then once every six months, you come back for a refresher. So they're trying to think of ways that we can reduce the effects that it wears off over time. So another big, big reason for fatigue that was one of the primary focuses of the conference was sleep. Sleep is so important and many people with MS suffer from sleep deprivation in some way, shape, or form. Maybe you have a hard time falling asleep or a hard time staying asleep. And sleep can not only cause fatigue, but a whole bunch of other symptoms, including cognitive dysfunction. One thing I found really fascinating was that researchers have actually been able to pinpoint the location of lesions that can lead to sleep disorders. And so what they found was brainstem lesions can lead to sleep apnea, REM sleep behavior disorder. So both of those and spinal cord lesions can lead to restless leg syndrome. So if you have either of those, I'm, I'm curious if that makes sense for you, if that's where your lesions are, but there are also other things that can cause sleep issues. So comorbid symptoms such as depression that can make sleep challenging, pain, spasticity, bladder, weakness, all of these things have been proven to cause insomnia. And lastly, one thing that a lot of people do for assistance with sleeping is they'll take a hypnotic such as Benadryl, um, PM, aspirin, PM, anything like that. However, it's been proven that medications like that hypnotics can actually cause insomnia, restless leg syndrome, sleep apnea, and 
REM sleep behavior disorder. So poor sleep, as I mentioned, as I'm sure you're aware without me mentioning it, can lead to, of course, fatigue, but also cognitive function. So the discussion here at the lecture was if we can treat sleep, we can not only have a big impact on fatigue, but we can also have a big impact on cognitive function. And poor sleep leads to so many other things. Poor sleep can lead to more falls. It can lead to more spasticity. It can lead to an exaggeration of other symptoms that we have, more weakness. So treating sleep could be huge for people with multiple sclerosis. I have given you so much information to think about just already from these updates. I'm only halfway through, but I don't want to overwhelm you too much. So I am going to end this episode right here. I want you to really soak in this information. And then I'm going to create a second episode, a part two, if you will, where I'm going to go further into the newest disease modifying therapy that is still in clinical trial, exercise recommendations, bowel, bladder, and sexual dysfunction, as well as benefits of dance for people with multiple sclerosis. So I appreciate you tuning in to learn about remyelination and updates on nutrition, spasticity, and fatigue. And I hope you join us next time for part two. If you are interested in getting the full lowdown on this information and not just the quick takeaways, then consider joining us over in the Missing Link online wellness program. This is my online program for people with MS where I share research like this, as well as exercises and yoga and task-specific exercises, such as how to move around in your day-to-day life. So there will be a link in the show notes for a behind-the-scenes video if you want to check that out and see if it would be a good fit for you. But I hope to see you next time in part two. Thank you for listening to today's show. I am so grateful to have you as a listener. If you'd like extra resources, such as a video of one of my seated exercise classes, my favorite core exercises, and the opportunity to ask me your questions, head to missinglink.com forward slash insider. That link will be shared in the show notes along with links to my social media handles. If you love this episode and think a friend or family member with MS would benefit from listening, please go ahead and text or email this podcast to them right now. Sharing this podcast will help me educate and empower as many MS warriors as possible. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Missing Link Podcast.